and welcome to a very special episode of The Deprogram. This is our first ever guest episode, and we are super excited to have with us Brett from RevLeft. Uh, Hakeem and I have both been on the show before, and we both had a great time, so we're glad to finally be able to return the favor. Uh, as a personal note, RevLeft is one of my absolute favorite podcasts, and it was critical in helping me develop my understanding of theory when I was just a tiny little baby leftist. So, Brett, thanks for coming on. Hell yeah. Thank you so much for, for having me on. I'm a fan of all of your work. I uh, really loved your presence on YouTube, and I was very excited when I heard you're coming over uh, to the podcast world. I do have to say, JT, I, I, I heard the last uh, teaser for your re- most recent episode, and I just want to extend my, uh-huh. my condolences for your, uh, <laughs> your harsh case of Havana syndrome. Yeah, Hope you can make yeah. it through the episode. <laughs> I know. It's the end for me. I'm feeling pretty yucky. Um, <laughs> but for those who don't uh, know who you are and what you get up to, why don't you take a second and just tell the listeners a little bit about, um, about yourself and about the podcast and what you do. Sure. Yeah, my name is uh, Brett O'Shea. I... Started Rev Left Radio, uh, you know, sort of left-wing uh, political podcast focused on history and theory and philosophy uh, at the very beginning of the Trump administration. Uh, it was actually, it started as a, a sort of outgrowth of local activism at that time, because if you remember in those, those heady days when, when, you know, Trump was on the campaign and then it became obvious that he was going to be the nominee and then he won. Um, and then there's that gap between when he won and when he took office. There's this there's this rise of resurgent fascism uh, within the country. And I live in a deep red state. It was certainly present here. And, uh, you know, right after his victory, like the night after, we I think I, I met up in a park with a bunch of other, you know, local leftists who we'd, we'd talked back and forth online for several months or years at that point. And we all got together. And we said we got to do something about this rising tide of fascism locally. Um, and uh, that organization developed into just a broader socialist organization. And, uh, you know, when we would go and we would do rallies or we would do counter protests or whatever, uh, there'd be media engagement. And, you know, I sort of became this de facto person that everybody would point to, like, you know, Brett's good with words, let him talk to the media. And out, out of that grew the, uh, the idea that maybe we should have a media wing to our local organization just to be able to get information out, you know, we were thinking locally, maybe regionally. You know, that was the the aspirations at first, um, but it, it quickly burst the bounds of of that and became a national and then like a sort of international show with audience members everywhere. And I just sort of been you know riding that wave ever since. And we've also developed two other shows, Guerrilla History, uh, which focuses on you know proletarian history in particular, and then Red Menace, which tackles specific texts of uh, left wing political theory. Although now I think we're, we're going to move into like reading anarchist theory, even fascist theory, and just, you know, reading theory more broadly to, to deepen people's understandings and make this stuff accessible, you know, especially more accessible than it often is to, to regular people. So that's kind of who I am and that's kind of what I do. That's fantastic. I mean, the, the fact that you've created not one but three outlets for people to learn more and they're all incredible podcasts. Mm-hmm. If you guys haven't listened to any of them, please go and check them out um, after the show. But I think we're all kind of in the same boat where we want to make this stuff more accessible to the average person, because especially here in the States, and I think you can attest to this, not a whole lot of people can actually put into words what the problems are. We see that there's a lot going on and there's a lot wrong with the the status quo, but sometimes it's difficult to kind of connect the dots. Um, So what I want to talk about today is kind of the role that we play, the role of alternative media whether that's podcasts or YouTube channels or you know bloggers or whatever, 
the role we play the vanguard the, va- the vanguard <laughs> <laughs> yeah. in in the radicalization of of normal people um because i think that is super critical going forward and, and building that class consciousness um both here in the states and and abroad um which hakim and yugopnik can attest to so before we get into that though let's let's talk a little bit about what your personal political development looked like because i'm sure we all have pretty varied stories what was your political development uh, like? It sounds like you were a, a, a socialist well before the, the Trump thing came along, which radicalized a lot of, um, you know, former liberals here in the States. But what was it for you? Yeah, no, uh, it, it goes way back, you know, and you look back retrospectively on, on your life and your development or really history at all, it, it gains more clarity. So at the time, I was just sort of, you know, going through my life. But looking back, I can see a clear trajectory. It really starts, I won't go too deep into the biography part of it, but it really starts like as a child, you know, living in a lower middle, a lower working class uh, family uh, would often come home when the you know, electricity would be turned off or the car was being repossessed or, you know, all these different things that just the, the day-to-day grind of not a complete immiseration, but, you know, the lower end of, of the mm. working class and, um, so I had that background experience uh, in in that milieu, sort of. And as I grew up and I became politically engaged, of course, there's only two options in the U.S., conservative or liberal. Uh, my dad was actually a really big uh, conservative talk radio guy. So uh, for lots of years in my life, I would listen to right-wing talk radio. And in fact, my political consciousness sprang up in and through my reaction to that. And I just always, even before my political ideology was even coherent. I just felt inside that they were wrong, you know, and so then I, I set out to try to figure out why they were wrong. That pushed me, um, you know, towards progressivism. I had a child very young, so I spent a lot of my teens recklessly, you know, drugs, sex, fights, just not caring about politics or anything deep at all. Um, but then at, at the age of 19, I, I, I got my uh, girlfriend pregnant so I had a child coming. I was working at a fucking gas station at the time. And I just remember thinking, like, I'm having a child coming into the world. Uh, I need to know who the fuck I am. I need to know what's going on in this mm-hmm. world. I need to do something. And so just I just started, you know, I would, like, work late at this gas station. And, you know, there'd be, like, plenty of times when you just go, like, an hour and a half without anybody showing up at 11 mm-hmm. or midnight or whatever. And I would just devour books um, just randomly. I would just, like, whatever book caught my fancy or caught my eye, I would just start reading it. Um, and then clearly that gave me more of a historical basis. I started understanding culture. I started understanding politics at a deeper level. Um, and so then that, that really progressed uh, into the Obama era. I remember like sitting, waiting for my daughter to be born as Obama was giving his inauguration speech. And I was very hopeful at that time. You know, 19, 20 years old, Obama after, you know, fuck ton of years of Bush and the Iraq war and all this nonsense of which I was like, you know, politically aware, but not deeply informed on, but still anti-war, you know, in general, listen to a lot of hip hop. So I kind of had that perspective. But I remember like having hope in Obama, like, you know, this, you know, if America might be able to, to put itself on a right path and do something. And it was actually during the Obama era, specifically after the, uh, the financial crisis and the response to it, uh, that radicalized me into socialism. So before the Obama administration was fully over, I was already um, a socialist, of, of course, you know, this is before, a lot of stuff was even available. Like, you know, you couldn't just go online and find communists talking about communism. It was, you know, we we actually kind of lose sight of just how recent this development is where people are all over online proclaiming themselves to be socialist and communist. Uh, That's a a new development. Um, And so I didn't really have a lot of resources. Obviously, you go back and read Marx and 
um, you know, read books and stuff, but it wasn't as accessible as it was now. So I originally just got into the Democratic uh, or the DSA before it was big, before Bernie. I was a card-carrying member for a few years in my early 20s. As my radicalism deepened, I moved into anarchism, as is often a sort of trajectory people take. Mm -hmm. Uh, Was never really comfortable in it because I felt like it did not answer several questions. Um, You know, deep questions like, you know, how do we bring about this stuff? Historically, what has worked? Um, You know, what is the actual strategy to pursue and transform, you know, pursue change and and transform the world? And uh, I was still, you know, indoctrinated with anti-communism, as most Americans are. Uh, You know, I I, I was scared of I didn't want to be an authoritarian, right? I didn't want to apologize for Stalin or anything like that. So that kept me away from calling myself a Marxist. And it was actually a book I read uh, by Terry Eagleton uh, called Why Marx Was Right. You know, Mm -hmm. it really really opened my mind and I needed that book at that time. And uh, what it basically did for me was was dismantle uh, my ingrained, conditioned anti-communism and anti-Marxism. And for the first time, I began calling myself a Marxist and proudly. Um, And then I started the show calling myself at the time a libertarian Marxist, right? Because I still didn't want to commit to scary things like Leninism or Maoism. (laughs) Yeah, classic. Um, (laughs) But then through the show, right, I'm talking to a bunch of people. One of the things we did early on was these um, uh, tendency episodes. So we'd focus on a specific tendency and bring somebody on from that tendency, not to argue or debate, but just to explain. I want to understand Trotskyism. I want to understand Marxism-Leninism. I want to understand anarcho-communism. And it was through that and then the broader conversations I was having that I just began put, being pushed towards a more principled Marxist position. And then, you know, once you read State and Revolution or something like that, you know, socialism, utopian, scientific is mm-hmm. over, you know. Uh, I'm, I'm on board. I'm on board. And so at that point, it's just Marxism-Leninism, um, flirtations with Marxism-Leninism, Maoism. And I kind of now I, I, I call myself sort of an anti-revisionist Marxist-Leninist, but I like to – to be in that that space of tension between Leninism and Maoism, I think it's an interesting space of tension. The disagreements there are interesting to me, um, and so I have sympathies with Maoism. Although perhaps I wouldn't fully commit to calling myself a Marxist-Leninist Maoist, but uh, yeah, long story short or stor- short story long, that's my uh, political trajectory. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's really cool. That's it's it's interesting as as a younger uh, Marxist to hear what it was like in, in the before times, you know, before <laughs> yeah. Bernie came along and, <laughs> yeah. and before it was, you know, more easily, it's it's easier to slip into the stream of, of socialism to proper communism these days because you've got so many resource, resources online. It's for a lot of people my age, it started around Bernie or a little bit before and, you you know, you heard those talking points. You're like, yeah, that makes sense. Why Why don't we have that here? And then you learn, well, Bernie's not actually a socialist. Oh, okay, what's what's socialism? And then it's just, you know, it snowballs from there. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like it, it would have, I can imagine, taken a lot more work on, on the personal level to, to find those resources um, back in, like, the Obama era and, and mm-hmm. even before, especially in the United States, where everything is geared towards keeping that information subdued, uh, mm-hmm. where you don't, we don't want to think about those alternatives. Everything is okay. We're doing fine. Obama's going to fix everything. He's got a broad coalition, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> and, of course, we all know how that turned out. T- top 10 anime betrayals of all time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um, and, I-, I was going to say, the, sorry to cut you off, but the uh, the thing about the uh, fine, like uh, having a hard time finding resources is very right, um, and I think this was kind of global as well. I think uh, both for Yugopnik and I mm-hmm. it would have been uh, similar. But God bless those 
You know, like, I don't have much good to say about Trotskyists. This is a joke for the people who might take this seriously. <laughs> but God bless those trots on the Marxist Internet Archive. They have the most garbage fucking oh Lord, design. Yes. <laughs> but bless that website. Anything you want, you could find on Absolutely. there. Yeah. Oh, fuck. <laughs> Amen. Absolutely. The whole website's like three goddamn megabytes. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I was reminded when 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 uh, Brett when you're talking about the uh, how you know your trajectory going through DSA and then into anarchism and whatnot uh, and of course since you're a card carrying member you attended meetings and whatnot and for some reason that, when you mentioned card carrying member that reminded me of one of the very first like political like meet 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 meetups or something if you want to even call it that that I had uh, when I was still a very new Marxist. And I basically enter into the room and just see a whole bunch of boomers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> fucking, and they're, they're all fucking, they're all, you know, they're all fucking smoking and shit. And I remember, and uh, what caught my eye, one of my very first experiences, and this is, I think, is very apt. It was the sectarianism of the left. I love it. Mm-hmm. It was two old guys in the corner, and one of them was basically yelling, "You haven't even fucking read Vordig." <laughs> <laughs> that was, the, and I just, that moment for a second when you said card carrying, I just imagined that <laughs> picture. I don't know why. Sorry. Sorry to derail this fucking conversation. Go on, go on. <laughs> no, definitely. At my, um, I was actually in a, a very small meeting to to actually inaugurate the first sort of Omaha chapter of of the DSA. And yeah, the first thing you you notice is that you're dealing with uh, the the previous generation or two of, of leftists mm-hmm. and <laughs> all of the sort of kind of sadness and tragedy that that you see in yeah. their eyes. Like you know, if you're a leftist coming of age in the 80s for Christ's sakes in the United States like I just have to tip my hat that you carried the flame forward at all you know yeah mm. yeah absolutely. no shit no shit posting just it's, pain <laughs> <laughs> it, they didn't even have the trenches of Twitter well, no. exactly <laughs> oh, fuck. that is true ideological warfare uh, but yeah for, for me the situation was relatively similar actually specifically in Eastern Europe where you know in these post-socialist countries that got literally billions of dollars of funding to set up uh, center-right or even far-right parties, sometimes also liberal parties, in order to uh, make sure that uh, different socialist parties or or the old communist parties don't get uh, uh, back into parliament with the first elections right after uh, the collapse of the local systems or I should better say the destruction mm-hmm. of the local systems. Uh, so uh, there was so much propaganda that was that moved in, into both the school system and like just uh, everyday media that you consumed that one could say that we kind of had a speed run of uh, Red Scare propaganda, but mm-hmm. not for period of 50 years, but in a period of two, three years, mm-hmm. this, these countries that proudly called themselves uh, socialists all of a sudden turned into uh, quite literally these spawn points for some of the most disgusting rhetoric you mm-hmm. could find anywhere, mm-hmm. be it in Europe or the rest of the world. Uh, but the reason I'm mentioning that is, uh, I don't know, I was like 17 when I went to, I wasn't even like ideologically uh, knowledgeable in any way at least not the way I am now, not like I am now. <laughs> but uh, I went to the first, there was a, a fascist meeting or what they call themselves, Chetniks, et cetera, et cetera, in the specific city that I was living in. Uh, and when I went uh, to the counter protest, it was literally only filled with uh, 
basically what you could call an anti-fascist protest. It was literally only filled with uh, 16, 17, 18-year-old potheads or 75-year-old <laughs> yeah. grandpas. So there's mm-hmm. these 70, 70, 75-year-old dudes in full suits, marching, not mm-hmm. even holding flags, just, you know, shouting profanities at the fascists from the other side uh, and reactionaries of all different stripes. And right next to them, these kids that, you know, uh, stink of skank <laughs> from like uh, seven, <laughs> yeah. seven miles away. And it was just, just the, 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 the it, seeing both of those generations that kind of believe in the same thing, yet have uh, vastly different lifestyles because they grew up in different uh, conditions uh, is, is quite a sight to behold uh, every time uh, hmm. you see That's it. Super you know? interesting, yeah. It's like the meme of the, uh, this is what it's like in every communist YouTube comment section and it's the picture of the two people on the subway the mm. the one old dude and then and exactly. the, the anime looking girl with the blue every, hair e- <laughs> every time and there's so many fights you guys don't know like uh, there's so many fights where, when like now at this point when Antifa where Antifa is I think it has been for like 15 years here but when it's a pro- proper anti-fascist march right Every time some grandpa shouts, uh, long live the Marxist-Leninist revolution, or he shouts, uh, long live Stalin, long live Lenin, and then you have the anarchist kids that are like 21 that shout, no, we denounce the authoritarians in this protest. <laughs> but but they listen, but they listen when some fucking, uh, you know, uh, consumers will save the planet and we shall uh, save the world by right. not eating meat, etc., etc. That, that guy's allowed to like have like stand up there and talk for like an hour, but an old grandpa that actually probably held a gun back in 45 nah fuck that dude but yeah sorry different rant apologies let's get it back on track here Um, (laughs) i want to go back to to the podcast a little bit um to rev left you've been producing the podcast for a number of years now so has your approach changed at all have you found that uh, some types of content perform better than others or that something uh, resonates with your audience a little bit more than something else does yeah, well, first thing to say about that is, you know, when I was thinking of, of making this show is, and, and specifically in the context of us discussing the lack of resources available, um, at, you know, at that time they were starting to pick up, but they just, they weren't anywhere near where they are even now. Um, but I wanted to make a show that I wanted to listen to. Like I was very mm. into talk radio growing up. And then as, when podcasts came along, I was like a very early adopter, like delivering pizzas and listening to podcasts you know, for hours and hours. all So I was already a huge podcast fan and I would search. I was desperate. I was looking for, you know, socialist, communist, principled left political podcast because that was the sort of world that I, I liked engaging with. And the very best you could find is like rad lib, progressive um, stuff at, at best, which I did listen to. But, you know, when I was going to make Rev Left, it was like I really did want to make a show that I wanted to listen to that I could not find. And so that was part of the part of the impetus. But as for how my approach has changed over the years, I'm not sure that my overall approach has, but I've certainly gotten better at interviewing. Right. That's a skill. And, you know, you, you jump in and you, and you start doing it and you realize that it's fucking harder than you thought. Right. Mm-hmm. You have a you have a guest on, especially if it's a prestigious guest and you're a little nervous. Um, you know, you have to follow what they're saying. You have to bounce back, uh, you know, responses to stuff that they lay on the table. You also have to be ready to transition to the next question. Um, some people are more talkative and outgoing and gregarious than others. So sometimes it gets a little awkward, right? So those are all things on the learning curve that I sort of had to get better at just by doing it over and over again. Um, but you know, I was able to also pick up new information from every episode and I still do this, obviously to take forward into future episodes. So it does sort of build on itself. Um, and my knowledge has been increased 
amazingly because of, you know, the people I've been able to talk to. Like, it's so surreal now where I'll read a book um, or, you know, I'll see something on the Internet and just be able to reach out to that author or that creator or that person and say, hey, you want to come on for an interview? And they say, yeah. You know, so like it's sort of like indulgent that I get to talk to people that otherwise I would just read their book and think about it for a few weeks. Now I can just say, hey, you want to come on and talk to me about it? Um, So that's kind of interesting. As far as like what um, types of content perform better, there is this general rule that I try to abide by for nothing else than my own sanity, which is not to pay attention to numbers, not to pay attention to what performs better and what doesn't. I feel like um, some incentives could sneak in there that you're not fully conscious of that can kind of skew what you're doing or you start playing to your crowd um, in a way that is not necessarily principled. Um, I think you see this a lot uh, with certain sort of people on YouTube, but I think also YouTube is a more algorithmically competitive environment. Um, so you sort of have to play that game uh, to survive in, in certain you know platforms and, and contexts. But with podcasts, it's not as intense in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just don't want to get in my head about it. You know, I don't want to start chasing numbers and chasing stats and only doing stuff because I feel like it'll get the most. And I don't even like promoting um, you know, my, my shit, like, I, I don't feel comfortable doing a lot of that. And that's like more, probably a personality thing uh, more than anything else. So I don't really focus on that, but you know, some things do get traction and you just notice it based on the response that you get. Um, and I don't know, you could do a lot of different uh, examples of this. I mean, at this point with Patreon and the public fleet, we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Um, so it's even hard to remember all the episodes <laughs> that we've done. I know my, like my red hot takes, where it's just me doing a monologue style rant over something that I, you know, feel particularly inspired to talk about. Uh, those tended to do pretty well, probably because they're hyper topical and there's a lot of emotion behind it. So, like uh, my episode "America on Fire" during the George Floyd protests, mm-hmm. um, you know, I was, yeah. I was, uh, you know, as I say in that episode, like I was heartbroken. Like you can hear me on the episode tearing up and, you know, sort of like crying and getting fucking enraged and it was a hundred percent authentic and it felt like I was you know venting some emotional intensity that a lot of other people had inside them and it was sort of cathartic for me to make and cathartic for people to listen to um so you know those do those do well and I'm particularly uh proud of that one um the the yeah I don't know there's a lot of episodes I don't even like to po- point one out because then I'll be driving home later and be like damn I should have gave that one a shout out or I should have stressed that <laughs> um, but overall I try not to hyper focus on on what performs and what doesn't I try to be I try to do stuff that I'm genuinely interested in because that genuine interest comes through right if if I have a guest yeah. on and I'm sincerely interested in the topic I'm discussing. Um, that's going to provide a better conversation than if I just had somebody on because I know that it's going to generate more clicks and content, but I'm not really into what they're doing or I haven't read their books or, or whatever it may be. So just trying to be as authentic and, and do follow my heart and uh, have episodes that I'm genuinely interested in and let the chips fall where they may. You know, that's that's sort of my personal approach. Yeah, I think that's a great approach. I mean, I, I discovered something similar because I used to do – you know, general interest kind of sciencey, infographicy kind of stuff on YouTube, and mm-hmm. I towards the end I was just I hated it. I was just burned out. I, I wasn't <laughs> having fun. I didn't care about it, and because of that, the views just absolutely tanked. People could tell I was miserable. And mm. then when I switched to to doing the stuff that I do now, which I genuinely care about, the views you know shot right back up. It's just it really is a a consequence of 
being authentic and just talking about things that you care about, because if you care about it, then people will just, they'll care about it too, because they care about people who are invested in things and who are genuine and not, you know, drenched in seven layers of irony, which can be fun, (laughs) but you know, it's, it's, that's not a, not a good way to live, but, um, But yeah, looking through your your back catalog, it's just incredible. The the guests you've had, the number of episodes you've put out, it's something that we we definitely aspire to. The the longevity and and rigorous approach you take to your to your mm-hmm. podcast, it's really something. Appreciate um, that. But going forward, what would you say is your your number one goal for RevLeft? Do you have a, an overarching goal? Well, it's certainly political education. It's getting these narratives out. It's it's rethinking about history uh, from a left perspective. It's trying to you know give people that are interested in this stuff the ammunition intellectually that they need to think through their own politics and then defend that politic uh, against you know all sides. Right? <laughs> if you're a communist mm. in the U.S., if you're a communist anywhere. You're going to have enemies all over the political spectrum, and you're going to have to be held to a higher standard than anybody else's intellectually. Like, you, as I always say, like if you're an anti-communist, you can be as sloppy as you want. You can just make shit up. You know, you can be like Jordan yeah. Peterson and flip through the manifesto, and then you know, uh, get get hundreds of thousands of likes and praise. Um, on on Rev Left, we just took down James Lindsay, uh, a particularly sloppy anti-communist, a mm. charlatan, a pseudo intellectual, but makes money and has a, a, a huge audience. Uh, just because it's so easy. The bar for being an anti-communist is below the ground. Um, and there's always going to be a place, especially in American politics, for people to make a career out of anti-communism. So in Marxists, we have to know history. We have to know uh, economics. We have to know philosophy. Um, you know, we have to understand everything culture. About everything. everything about everything, you know. Yeah. Um, and so I, yeah. I like to make sure if that... You, sorry. I was just going to say, if you don't know what Ho Chi Minh ate in 1952, <laughs> March 4th, 1952. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, but yeah, just... The, the correct answer there is he didn't eat because communism, no food. Sorry. Exactly. Communism, no food. Um, but yeah, just trying to equip people intellectually. So that's obviously one element. The other element is to inspire. I do not want to be... Um, a dry academic. I'm, I'm not an academic. The way I talk, the, the who I am, you know, it's not this pristine, shored up, you know, academic style. Um, but it, it, it comes from the heart. It's a little grittier than, than, you know, maybe other stuff, especially that existed at that time. Um, it's more unapologetic. And um, it's, it's, I try to, you know, infuse a human element into it because I realize that appealing to people's intellect is good and important and one element of it, but you have to appeal to people's hearts. You have to actually appeal to their personal experiences. Um, you have to connect with them on a human level, and that will give more gravitas to the intellectual content. And mm-hmm. um, especially lately, over the last couple of years, I've been trying to embed this communist politic into a broader engagement with life, right? So, like, you'll see a lot of episodes on Rev Left on Zen Buddhism, on Islamic mysticism, on psychoanalysis, right? On a whole bunch of Russian novelists like uh, Dostoevsky, the recent episode we just did. And, and what I see with that is twofold. One is this expanding of, of what we're about. Like, we're not just Marxists. We're also human beings, and there's other elements to being human. And so that's a, an important thing to do, like, to fully flesh that out. But... Also, to give people different doorways into the left, right? If I put up a bunch of stuff about Marxism and communism and blah, 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 like it's important, it's essential, I do do it. Um, but you're not, nece- you're not always going to bring people in unless they're directly interested in that stuff. But if I have an mm-hmm. episode on Zen Buddhism or I have an episode on Dostoevsky or whatever it may be, um, 
you're giving people a doorway into your show. So somebody's going to be interested, let's just say, in like crime and punishment. They're looking for something that uh, some podcast that's going to help them understand Dostoevsky and his work. They search it in the bar. Rev Left Radio comes up. Oh, this looks interesting. Clicks it, right? Oh, wow, that was a really interesting, good conversation. I like that. Let's see what else they do. You know, and they start scrolling and then, whoa, communism and Marxism and what the, okay, well, maybe I'll give it a shot. You know, that first episode was pretty good. The sound quality is up there. I'll, I'll give it a shot. And I've had people tell me that's how they got into left-wing politics, coming into a Rev Left episode that wasn't ostensibly about politics at all. Um, and then that being the doorway through which they discovered the rest of our catalog and then that pushed them leftward, et cetera. So education, inspiration, and then embedding our politics in a broader engagement with different areas of life are, are my, in totality, the, the goal of Rev Left, if you will. That's awesome. Yeah, I think that's a really effective approach. I mean, as you've seen with the success of your podcast, uh, casting a wide net, and but with the same ideological core behind it, I think that's, that's really cool and a great way to bring people in who might otherwise not be terribly interested in, in you know, the strict dry communism stuff it might turn them off but yeah giving them giving them doors like you said that's a great approach and we do we do we do add in the political element right so we have like an episode on stoicism Mm. or dostoevsky and then you you'll hear all of that but then you'll also hear a discussion about how left politics if at all interacts with that and that that can create some genuinely interesting stuff because you can go online and find a bunch of shit about dostoevsky or zen buddhism or stoicism but you'll almost never hear like a principled Marxist trying to wrestle with the implications of these things, right? So then that makes a topic that's been covered a lot truly unique as well. So I think that that helps uh, that helps as well. I think uh, one one of the stated goals of the politics, of course, that uh, you forgot to mention was bringing down Western civilization. Oh, of course, <laughs> that's implied. That's implied. It goes without saying. <laughs> Attacking Judeo-Christian values. That's, that's our point. Absolutely. <laughs> Sorry. The Protestant yeah. work ethic. Well, Brett, you mentioned a little earlier um, that being a communist online, you, you make a lot of enemies. Um, and so let's let's segue towards the realities of, of being a communist online. Um, I think most people listening to this probably already have a personal understanding that um, being open about socialist beliefs can come with some risk. Uh, is that the case in your life, uh, especially given the status of your podcast as one of the more well-known socialist programs? Uh, have you faced any harassment or negativity in your time online? Oh, absolutely, yes. Um, and it, it was very much offline. The harassment took the form mm. of, of offline harassment. So um, I've weathered since the beginning of the show uh, waves of docs campaigns, specifically early on when, when our show was so deeply tied to local activism and thus local anti-fascism. Um, you know, and, and, you know, any anti-fascist org is going to be sort of shadowy, right? The whole point is like OPSEC and protect your identities. And, and this is early Antifa days in, in the U.S., though. So, like, people weren't fully informed on all of the dangers and all the ways to stay safe yet. That's sort of been generated as Antifa has advanced in, in, in popular culture and in the political realm. Um, but at the beginning, you know, because these t- the show was so tied with this activism and we literally went after Nazis um, in our area and, and you know, f- fucked them up, like not physically necessarily, mm. but like chasing them out of town, really bringing consequences for them, um, for their schools and their employment, etc. Mm. And I-, I wasn't a leader of this. I was just one of the many members of like regular working class people that were trying to push back against the fascist insurgent, but insurgents. But because I was popular and had a public facing um, platform, I became the face of everything Antifa in the area. 
um, because I was the only person they could they could readily identify. And so that made me the the target of very intense dox campaigns by Nazis um, to the extent that my workplace at the time I was working in retail, every car in the parking lot uh, were flyered with these you know flyers against me. The um, my fiance's workplace was was flyered. Her mom's Jeez. house was flyered. My mom's address was put up on these neo-Nazi websites. Um, my mom would get uh, hate mail from Nazis, threatening, menacing letters like, "I'm, you know, we're coming to visit you and your boy next week or whatever, you know." And she would call me fucking crying. Um, Jesus. It got it got very intense. One of the things they also did was uh, they called in fake terrorist tips against me to the local mm. police. So they said that I was a radical communist that was trying to kill rich rich people and blow up infrastructure. And so they actually were able to weaponize the police against me so that I had, you know, detectives showing up at my house, um, you know, que- trying to question me. Um, we had you know, FBI people come to my house uh, to question me about certain things. And, uh, you know, an investigation was opened against me. So they were pretty good on that front and in, in, in getting a well-rounded uh, attack on me on all fronts. And it was fucking relentless and it went on for months and months and months. And no matter how cool, calm, and collected you are, that shit mm. fucks with your head. Mm. It gets in your psychology. You're driving home. Like they would say on their sites, like, we don't exactly know where he lives right now, but this is what it, this is what he is. This is where he works. If any good patriots could follow him home and give us his address, we'd be very much obliged. You know, we'd be very happy with that or whatever. And, bro, I got kids. I have three mm. children. Uh, you know, my, my son was an infant. My wife was terrorized, like didn't know what the fuck was happening. Her family, my family, they didn't know what was happening. So one of the consequences is is uh, taking self-defense incredibly seriously. So I've always been, I've I've lived in only Nebraska, Montana, always been around hunters and outdoorsmen. I know how to fuck with guns. So I got guns, got big dogs, you know, got a security system. And, um, you know, one thing about fascists is they're ultimately cowards. You know, nobody ever, you know, some crazy will, and that's always the, the, the idea, right? It's like, it just takes one crazy fucking weirdo to do something insane, right? It is not like you have to think rationally, are these people really going to do this like in a game of chess? But most of the time they're cowards. They, they want to, you know, lob shit against you from afar. They don't ever want to actually confront you. Um, yeah. And so, so the, I never actually had fascists at my house, which other people have had. And that's a whole other thing. Although I was constantly ready for it and constantly having to be on the, on the guard, like every night I would go to sleep and I would like turn my fan on low just so I could hear anything. And I'd have my dog out in the living room so he could bark and my gun right next to my, my bed if I had to jump into action. Um, so, so yeah, it was, it was insane. I mean, fucking at some point we used to have a podcast early on called the guillotine, where it was actually me and this anarchist. And, um, we got targeted by Alex Jones. So Alex Jones did a segment oh. on Infowars because it was at this time when right-wing people like Jones were getting canceled and pushed off social media, right? So they found the craziest lefties they could find, which was at the time our show was called The Guillotine, and we would do video with us masked up. Um, so they, you know, the images were perfect for them to throw up on yeah. their screen, like violent communists, you know, this guy says he loves Mao, a brutal dictator, um, you know. And so that caught a lot of steam, and, and that resulted in another wave of, of doxing against us and all this shit, you know, but... Um, it, it happens. It sucks. I've learned a lot. I've learned home defense. I've learned, um, uh, you know, how to protect my identity. And I've also learned that, especially if you have a public platform, you have to be very 
careful. Like I have a family. My first responsibility is to them and keeping them safe. And there's certain ways that I can go about doing my shows that either do or do not invite backlash. So mm-hmm. going after specific people, you're, you're inviting that backlash. And that was part of the first docs is on the guillotine. We'd go after these Nazis locally and I'd name them out. You know, we'd put them up on the screen. We'd tell them what school they went to, et cetera. Okay, well, what you give out, you get back. So I had to learn that lesson brutally that, you know, if you're going to play that game online, expect it to blow back in your fucking face. And so I've had to, you know, sort of reorient myself back up. Not that I would water down my politics at all. I'm still, as you all know, unapologetically anti-fascist to the fucking core. Um, but there's, you know, you, you don't need to like, go out of your way to invite the, the nonsense. And even so much as masking up. Right. I learned that to be a mistake because it just feeds into an aura. It looks violent. It looks scary, especially in these early Antifa days when people really didn't know about the far radical left. And so they could run with those images and, you know, put them on flyers, say whatever they want, etc. So I've learned how to navigate this space in a way that doesn't overtly invite that sort of backlash. But uh, but yeah, man, it's, it's been it's been uh, it's been intense. <laughs> Yeah, I can imagine that. That's terrifying, honestly. Um, and the showing your face thing—that was—that was something that I really thought about when I made the switch to my uh, political content. I figured, okay, I can, I can try to obscure my identity, or I can just be open about it from the get-go, in the hopes that I'm not giving these people like a present to unwrap. Like, mm-hmm. here, this is me. Here's my name. You can, you know, and the, uh, I was banking on the fact that most people, like you said, they're cowards. They'll send death threats but not actually do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and so far, so good. The only people I've had uh, show up at my door is, is the DHS uh, one time. <laughs> um, and, and that wasn't so bad. I mean, that was, you know, a few minutes of them asking, you know, strong arm questions trying to intimidate me. But man, I can't imagine the the stuff you've had to deal with the the doxing of of your family, especially. That's terrifying and and also infuriating. So, I mean, kudos to you for mm. for dealing with that, and <laughs> and I hope it doesn't you know come back again. That's uh, I well, I appreciate that. And you know, one thing that I, I try to make very clear too is I'm a father. So you know, any fascist or whatever Nazi that wants to try to be tough or bring heat or whatever, like they got to understand that. You know, I am my father defending my children. I will fucking do everything. I'll do yeah. anything. Like you are playing with fire if you think I'm going to let you come anywhere near my family. And so, you know, if you if if anybody were to try to do that, like they would be met with buckshot on the fucking front porch. And I would never want to do that, of course. But when yeah. you're when you're pushed on in this direction, you got to think in those ways. And and that's and that's rough. And I did do an episode back in the day called Don't Talk to Cops, where I talked about some of my experiences with this FBI agent or with this detective and the sort of games that they would play. And I learned very quickly, you know, how much they lie and deceive and manipulate and and what they're always, they're they're never, they always present themselves as your friend, but they never are. Um, And so I learned like, just don't talk to them. Don't give them anything to work with because they're not good faith actors and they're not fucking on your side. Um, But the other thing I wanted to mention, too, you mentioned about showing your face is there's a little bit of a paradox here because by not showing your face and by by going out of your way to hide your identity, you do kind of create a context in which it would be nice to unveil you. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I I, I learned that, too. Okay, well, if I just am honest, I show my face whenever I'm asked. You can find me online. I do, you know, interviews where they do video and they have YouTube channels. So. You know, that's my face. I sort of like loosen those boundaries a little bit because I realize that if you're a public figure and you're just out there being public and not necessarily trying to hide your your shit, it it de-incentivizes them to 
to pull back the curtain and you know reveal who you really are. Like everybody mm-hmm. already knows who I am. You can go see me. So there is that paradox. You want to hide yourself and be safe and and protect yourself, which you absolutely should. But on the other hand, sometimes that can create the incentive to try to figure out who you are. And I don't say this to scare anybody or to make anybody, you know, ruffled. This is the early days of Antifa. I don't think it's as prominent where this level of doxing and harassment is going to be necessarily totally ubiquitous unless something else shifts in our in our politics and our culture. But it is just to say that, you know, you should be thinking about these things very deeply if you're going to be an outspoken communist in any part of the world, you know. Yeah. Well, one thing we've talked about on on the deprogram before is that a lot of these fascists are are young and impressionable men who are kind of lost and don't know where to turn, um, and a lot of them do grow out of it. Have you had personally any success with you know de-radicalizing those people or or winning them over, or do you think that's more of a waste of time? I think it, it can be useful. Um, a certain sort of person is is better adjusted to that than others. I came out of the gate um, in those heady early days of, of Antifa as like an outspoken anti-fascist, so I was more interested in, you know, understanding them so we could fight them as opposed to trying to lure them in. Yeah. But um, you know, other people have different qualities and different types of shows that might be more conducive to that. I certainly think it's worthwhile. I mean, I, th- I think there's there's plenty of young, confused, angry people out there who are reacting to social conditions they don't fully understand, and it might be that one video or that one lifeline that a leftist extends to them that takes them off that path of, of going full fascist into that angry, hateful, insane world of, of being a fucking fascist and trying to organize with other complete assholes, like the worst people in the fucking world, right? Um, so I, I think it's it's worthwhile if done right. Um but that was never my objective, and I don't think I've been particularly successful at even attempting, let alone succeeding at that. Though I do hope that maybe um, as people, you know, there's somebody somewhere that was maybe being lured in by fascist rhetoric online and looked up, Googled, or, you know, went to a podcast app to find something about fascism, found Rev Left, and maybe that broke down um, their ideas and, and shed light and pushed them off that path, you know. I have not necess- I mean, I get fucking fuck ton of emails and stuff i can't i can't read them all i don't know um but i would like to think that maybe i've I've been able to do that at some point uh but yeah i'm not sure what, what yeah. are your thoughts on that i think we're i think we're probably on the same page um it's in my opinion you know i'm not particularly good at it either i've gotten a couple of emails saying like hey i was on this you know alt-right pipeline or whatever and i watched some of your videos and they really resonated with me yada yada so some people you know whether they're how far gone they are, it's hard to tell, but some of them have, have come out of it. Um, but that's not something I go out of my way to do because it does take a lot more effort, in my yeah. opinion, and that effort could be spent elsewhere talking to people who don't already have that kind of ideological baggage. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't want to end up with a, you know, a highly suspect comrade that you've converted from these holding these awful views about you know, whoever it is, Jews or women or whatever. If they accepted those views at one point, they might still kind of cling to those further down the line. So mm-hmm. I think there's definitely some people you can win over and, and become good, worthwhile comrades. But uh, it is a bit of a risk and it is a, a time investment that may not end up um, being worth it. But uh, Hakeem and Yugopnik, we've mentioned this a little bit before. What do you guys think? Uh, I, I don't agree with either of you. I think you have definitely, uh, quote-unquote, de-radicalized people, but maybe not in a mm. way you think. So the way I look at uh, 
the fascist pipeline specifically, the only proper way and the most successful way for a communist to uh, push a potential fascist into the what I could call the left pipeline is to catch them uh, at the point and with the point uh, of contention that they have with the world. Yeah. So, for example, many young fascists struggle in relationships. Mm -hmm. uh, they can't, uh, you know, either get laid, uh, get a girlfriend, boyfriend, etc., etc. Uh, and then the fascist manages to push them in by promising them a more traditional world where the man can, you know, put his hand on the table and uh, reintroduce the nuclear family, etc., etc., or they're struggling uh, with uh, finances and the fascist introduces them, you know, to the Jewish question of why they are struggling mm -hmm. with finances. Or they had a horrible experience uh, once or twice with somebody who happens to be ethnicity A, B, C, or D. Uh, by making communist principled Marxist, uh, be it videos, be it podcasts, be it writing books or leaflets, etc., etc., which analyze those specific things, like I gave relationships as an example, from a Marxist lens, uh, we can potentially catch these people before they go and listen to the mm. fascist argument. And not only before, but even in parallel, a lot of people are struggling with a lot of things, so they're continuously looking for answers. The same way you, you Brett, were sitting, uh, sitting at work and you know, plowing through all of these books. Chance, like at the end of the day, yes, you're a super cool dude, so that's why, you, uh, that's why you went to that direction. But in an, an alternate world, the first book you might have read at that gas, gas station could have been the complete opposite. Yeah. Uh, so, so what I'm trying to say here basically is uh, very simple. Uh, at the beginning, there's a beginning of a radicalization process, for, and there's a reason why somebody uh, gets pushed into the fascist pipeline. If we address all those points that fascists are addressing but in their own insane manner through a Marxist lens, uh, we will have a much better time because we will not, quote-unquote, need to fight or de-radicalize as many fascists as exist today mm. because they would not become fascists mm. in the first place. Yeah. And both you uh, and JT and Hakim uh, have a lot of content out there that I believe really mm. uh, did a great job in doing it. It doesn't have to have the title, oh, how to convert but uh, fascist uh, Bob from yeah. Nevada, you know? <laughs> that's, that's really interesting, yeah. I think uh, as, as a silly, uh, I guess, analogy, like the Cuban healthcare system, it's better to, to be preventive rather than mm. symptomatic mm. treatment, right? Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, exactly like, like Yugovnik said. I think there's also another aspect that's, um, I think it's missing from my content, but uh, you guys do a, a better job of that, which is the more uh, cultural aspect, let's say, especially Yugovnik's work, mm. I think. Yeah. Um, but same with with both you guys, where you like it's one thing to be like, hey, you know, surplus value, right? <laughs> and it's another thing to like go from the angle of why are you unhappy in relationships, and how does that relate to alienation, and how does that relate to capitalism? That's a kind of a a deeper analysis, maybe more tedious, um, and also I guess you could say less impactful, like from a propagandistic point of view. But at the end of the day, it's something that can help fix issues of. Mostly young people who don't really know what's going on in the world are confused and just want to find an answer. Um, but yeah, I think it's 
I, I, I lay in the middle of all these positions. It's I think we shouldn't devote all our energy into de-radicalization of fascists, but we shouldn't completely ignore it either. I think there are certain people who are cut up for the job, and those certain people uh, are the ones who, who can kind of carry the brunt of it. Those who have an inclination towards more cultural-type content who understand. Um, like, it's funny to say, but like, <laughs> nowadays, if you really want to work towards de-radicalization in that sort of sphere, you'd have to be very into, if you want to call it internet culture or whatever, you need to know all the stupid memes that they have on their side. Mm -hmm. You need to know all the talking points you need to. And after a while, like me personally, I wouldn't be able to drudge through fucking uh, fascist, I don't know, uh, like threads or fucking Reddit or Same. subreddits or whatever, yeah. looking, yeah, looking at what they have to say and whatnot, and then trying to, because uh, at the end of the day, I just see it and I'm like, yeah, but the fuck, your answers are so simple that they be, that they're wrong, and by virtue of their simplicity, they're always wrong, yeah. right? You can't just point at one, th you can't point at the complete economic decline of the United States, the single greatest empire to ever exist, and be like, oh, you know, Jews, like, oh my god, or the yeah, Irish, <laughs> oh yes, oh the Irish conspiracy <laughs> fuck and then they always oh god <laughs> they are in all media <laughs> oh jesus christ uh, the people are yeah it's, it's uh, as uh, <laughs> you know the meme where it's like a politician and there's like a, a puppet hand above him uh, mm -hmm. and that, those are the Jews and then the puppet hand above that is Albanians that's the one we're all thinking <laughs> 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 I'm joking these are all fucking jokes <laughs> all, the, all the Albanian communists just went underground why do yeah. you think they built all those bunkers yeah, exactly. it wasn't defense against Yugoslavia yeah, it was exactly. the ultimate escape plan mm. together with the lizard people underground they made a, a lizard slash human communist utopia uh, we're just missing out real Poseidus hours <laughs> yeah why do you think Albanians why, why do you think Albanian sounds like I don't know the Sims language it's because it's half lizard half human you know? much love to my Albanian yeah. brothers and sisters <laughs> JT, bring it back on the rails. <laughs> yeah, you got it. Well, we talked a little bit about winning fascists over and whether that's worth it. But let, let's talk about uh, winning people over in general. So with so much animosity being directed towards the left and that mindset being reinforced by the mainstream media, what do you think the role of alternative media is, like what we do? Do we have a responsibility to counter these narratives or do you think we should be focusing more on just doing our own thing and, and leaving the countering to other people? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think we certainly have to counter these narratives. Like I said earlier about giving people a sense that, that, you know, if you're on the left, you actually belong to this beautiful, you know, insanely human, gorgeous tradition with all of its good, bad, ugly, you know, everything included. And, and giving people that sense that they can be in that tradition, that, that tradition that's been suppressed, that's been eradicated from our schools and our popular culture that most people don't know about, to be on the left and to find that tradition is actually really beautiful. Um, and, and so that can be a really starting point of, of bringing somebody over is like, no, like you can, you can partake in this amazing history that goes back through, you know, Rosa Luxemburg and, and Mao and Lenin and all these other movements all throughout, you know, the last several hundred years, all the way back to Marx and Engels and beyond them, um, to like, you know, peasant struggles for a better life. Like this is a beautiful tradition that we exist in. And, and that's really interesting and gives people a sense of history, particularly, in a culture that doesn't give you anything to be proud of, if you have if you have half a heart, mm. American culture is anathema to everything that good people <laughs> should stand for and believe in. It's grotesque, um, and mm. so you you you've been now actually deprived of being able to have 
I don't know, love and pride in your country and your society or feeling as if you belong mm. to a, a tradition that's, that's worthwhile and moral and beautiful. You know, we've been stripped of all of that. Um, and, and, and the only way to really regain that and to, like, take that on as an American is to become a fascist or at least a conservative or a reactionary to say, no, actually, I'm proud of all this horrific shit. Um, and so most people, they, they, they're sort of unmoored. They don't have community in this hyper-individualized, ravaged capitalist landscape, but they also don't feel like they have any cultural connections and any traditional um, connections. And so that, that's one thing that we can offer. Um, and then the narrative that we can that we can place uh, on top of that is an understanding of, OK, here's our history. Now let's use that history to understand the present and um, and make that more digestible, more understandable, um, given that history. So so that that I think helps. I think humanizing ourselves is huge. And I always I always like to make this point uh, in a culture that degrades and dehumanizes specifically communists, but leftists in general that eradicates our traditions, that suppresses our history, um, uh, that, that, that really makes communists seem like these heartless, mechanic, you know, villains to humanize ourselves and to say, hey, we're just fucking regular people. We're interested in regular shit. I have fucking, I have a family. I have friends. I've existed in this culture my entire life. I'm not some scary outsider. Uh, I am a product of this mm-hmm. insane society and I'm standing against it. And, you know, these are the reasons I'm standing against it. Intellectual, moral, emotional, aesthetic, right? We can go we can, cultural. We can go all across the gambit here. But, like, we're human fucking beings. And my position as a communist comes out of my humanity and my love for other human beings. Even people across the planet I don't know that don't speak my language. Even people back in time that are long gone um, that I still care about and still find connections to. So that, that's one thing. Um, connecting with people that human uh, Do you level. mind if I just uh, uh, interject just slightly? Um, I completely agree with this, and there's this one aspect I think that, I, I, sadly, I don't really see on the American left, but it should be something that's uh, more emphasized, which is the idea that somehow communists are anti-American, not in the way, just to like preface it, all Marxists, all communists are anti-American in the idea of what America is, right? right? Um, but the American people, the, the actual human beings, the flesh and blood, people that exist within those borders or whatever line you want to call it, the people who, uh, the, the, the politically motivated people who care about them the most always end up being Marxists or communists because we're the only ones that want to make sure these people are housed, fed, educated, are not burdened with debt, are not burdened by a completely meaningless fucking bullshit jobs that just, uh, you know, suck them dry and not in the good way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, completely, that completely suck them dry out of any pleasure in life until they completely, you know, break down as, 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 as uh, in body and in soul all for like corporate profits. Meanwhile, the, the those who claim to be oh so patriotic and loving of America and Americans and everything that America stands for are the ones who you know send jobs overseas and as a result uh, bankrupt local communities. They're the ones who dump um, pollutants into local communities. They're the ones who basically uh, rise up uh, uh, gated communities to basically segregate themselves from those other Americans who they love so much, etc., etc. I think it's just it's a real shame that. This particular point has kind of been handed to the other side, yeah. where you know we're the anti-Americans and they're the pro, whatever. Uh, despite the fact that, and of course, this is again to the conversation of patriotism, blah blah blah. Like, understand what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, that, that, that was just a small interjection. Sorry, I cut you off. No, yeah, I think that's really, really important. And even to explicitly say that to somebody who might even be suspicious is like, I oppose America. I oppose the government. I oppose the economic system. I oppose the empire precisely because I love the people and not just the American people, but people in general. But certainly it's, you know, the, the people of America are being robbed and destroyed by America unless they belong to a certain, you know, class of privileged elites or whatever. So, so yeah, making that very clear, I think is important because those things can be easily conflated. Oh, you hate America. So you hate my grandpa who died fighting the Nazis in world war two or no, my, all my friends, all my family, I've never even left the country. Everybody I fucking know is American there. I love them to death, you know, <laughs> like, so, so yeah, making that point, I think can, can be helpful in, in, blunting the edge of, of that particular critique, which does hold weight with like regular Americans. Like, well, you know, I don't, I don't hate America. Like, why would I hate, you know, like they don't really understand all the stuff about the economic mm. system and the imperialism and all that. So it, Pop tarts are great. Yeah. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that line of reasoning can be convincing to them. Um, but just, just one more thing I really wanted to, to say about this in addition to humanizing ourselves, well, two more things. One is to be humble, right? Because I think uh, another stereotype of communists is that they're overly academic, overly, you know, stuffy, and and they use big words that regular people don't understand, um, and they talk down to you, right? They want to they wanna lecture you like, like academic elites, and, uh, you know, you, you're all dumb, and, and we're coming to give you the information that you need, right? So being humble and really being humble is uh, can can prevent that uh, because it's like no I'm I'm just learning along with you I'm not here to tell you mm. anything um, here's some views I have and let me learn this with you and what do you think and so that that's that's important but the really important thing and the last thing I'll say on this and this goes back to our conversation we were having a few minutes ago right wing conspiracy theories in particular which is just right wing ideology a lot of the time <laughs> um, it, it does three things. As, as, as you've all said, it, it hyper-simplifies the narrative. Um, it scapegoats the vulnerable, and it gives the believer in the conspiracy theory a persecution complex, even if that person is, by all actual measures, a member of the racial, ethnic, religious majority of that country, right? So white, evangelical, upper-middle-class, suburban Christians um, in the U.S. can hop onto a conspiracy theory like QAnon or even just the general brain rot that is right-wing American reaction and actually convince themselves that they're the victim. They are being attacked by these immigrants, by these specifically liberal elites, by these leftist intellectuals, etc. So, so we, have to, we have to understand that on the left if we want to counter it. And one of the hard things about being on the left is precisely that simplistic versus complexity narrative problem, which by virtue of being uh, absurdly simplistic you can reach people very easily. Like, you know, like you said earlier, it's the Jews or it's the Muslims or it's the, the politicians you don't like or, you know, it's the media that you don't like. And so it, that's what's causing all these problems, right, in society. And so you take your vision away from the actual ruling elite, those with money and power. You point it towards the vulnerable. Um, you, you reduce the complexity of the problem into very simplistic narratives, and you will be able to easily convince lots of people on that front. So we have the problem of trying to combat hypersimplicity with an analysis that is, by definition, complex. We are wrestling with the complexity of history, the interrelations between cultural institutions, legal institutions, the economic base, uh, you know, so many different things. And so we actually have the... I think objectively more correct story to tell, but that story is by definition a much more complex one. 
And so that's where a lot of this other stuff comes in is like we have to be very good at explaining complex topics and concepts to regular people. We have to be regular people ourselves. We have to know what regular people think and what they're like. We have to be humble and humanize ourselves to others. Um, And we have to appeal to them at the level of the mind as well as the level of the heart. And I think I think that is our task. And um, and that's what we should be focused on. Uh, so I guess that would be my answer to that broad broad question. Although there's plenty more answers to be given. I think that was that was all very well said. I think it's so critical that we consider how we package our perspectives and our worldview and the stuff we want to get across to people. And I think that's also why it's so important that we do have kind of an established pipeline on the left, um, where you have channels like mine, where I'll present things, you know, very very surface level. I'll do 101 stuff and I'll I'll delve into some, you know, proper Marxist topics, but I'll never use the jargon. I'll try to find ways to talk about it that an average person can understand. And from mm-hmm. there, if people kind of like the vibe, if they can identify with the problems and say, "Okay, this guy sounds like his heart's in the right place. He wants to help us." And then I can hand them off to another channel like Hakim or Ugopnik or toss them to your podcast. Then they can get a little bit more information. They can go a little bit deeper. They can start to learn the jargon. They can start to learn the history. Um, I think it is more of a team effort, and it's critical that it is a team effort um, Mm -hmm. on the left versus with the right. Their pipeline is just it gets more and more racist with with each (laughs) YouTube recommendation. So it's not quite as critical. (laughs) But, but yeah, I think that was all very, very well said. I was going to say SMH, SMH, damn damn revisionists. You're you're telling me Mao's Mao's rejection of the negation of the negation isn't a simple topic? Please, all right? I'm sorry. This is stupid. Well, Hakeem, you had mentioned uh, what you thought the American left was missing, but Brett, what do you think the the online left in general is missing? What can we... <laughs> Sorry. For a second, I thought you were going to say, what do you think the Iraqi left is missing? Yeah. I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> Let me tell you. <laughs> yes, please. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, sorry, go Arms go and legs. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Oof. Oof. Oh, like half of my house is facade, <laughs> but yeah. yeah. Anyway, Brett, what do you think we as an educational ecosystem can do better going forward? Yeah, so so I have some uh some some main points to cover here. And I'll be pretty quick about this. Um <clears throat> one is to especially with thinking about you know, the left, the online left, the educational left on whatever platform you're operating on. Um, you know, what do you, what should you not do? So we should not make it about personalities and egos. I see this mm. all the fucking time. Yes. Um, it is, Mashallah, yeah, it is so, it is so an annoying where it's like this leftist disagrees with this other leftist on this point. So I'm going to spend 20 minutes talking about why this leftist isn't a real leftist. Like that is absolutely fucking brain rot nonsense, you know? Um, and it's it's ego driven, so it's about being right. It's about putting other people down. You're not actually educating. You're not explaining. You're not reaching people. You're just. I mean, it can drama and outrage generates clicks, and so people do it for obvious reasons. But definitely avoid that if possible. Second thing is, I've always been anti debate culture. I think debate is yes. like bourgeois indulgent nonsense i think it doesn't shed light on anything but debate me on that that. (laughs) i'll debate you later on that point um but it's it's not productive because what happens is the the two people debating bring their audiences and they're already hunkered down in a defensive position i'm not here to learn i'm here to make sure my guy wins 
Um, mm-hmm. And so right there, education has been tossed out of the window. And it actually doesn't matter. Whoever wins a debate says nothing about who's right or who's wrong. It just says who spoke better, who got the better upper hand, who thought of the, the witty thing first. It says nothing about who is actually right or wrong. So it sheds absolutely no light. It just generates meaningless heat. So avoid debate culture. And, if, and, and that's not to say avoid criticism or debate. Um, it's to, to avoid a certain sort of debate. <laughs> Have you read Lenin? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Debate a spectacle is different than just debate. Exactly. Right, but, yeah, yeah. but like I, I had a series where I had on anarchist um, just as a discussion series. So I had on three different anarchists, and we just back and forth in a respectful context explained our differences. This is where I think anarchism is kind of weak and doesn't have an answer. Well, here's my answer to that, and here's why I think there's a good criticism of Marxism historically. So then right now, egos are are put away, nobody's on the defensive, and you're having a back-and-forth conversation, and that can actually generate real insight and educational purposes. Um, And then the the last thing I would say for what not to do is, and I don't think any of us fall into this, and I think if you're far enough left, you probably won't fall into this, but it's this... Um, chasing the car of daily electoral politics. Mm-hmm. You know, this shitty politician said this. What do we think? Oh, Joe Rogan says this. What do we think? This upcoming election is happening. Who do you think is going to win? Oh, this governorship in Virginia race is pretty close. Like, you know, what are your opinions on who's going to win? Like, that's all meaningless nonsense. And you're just, like I said, ch- it feels like you're chasing the car of this ever-moving politics. You're not actually shedding light. You're not really educating people. It's just like opinion-mongering for its own sake. Um, and it's tied to the ephemera of day-to-day meaningless lowbrow you know political engagement um with the electoral realm in particular so those three things i would avoid and then for things that we should obviously you know do is i think we've, we've covered a lot of it you know connecting our politics up with other fields of interest humanizing ourselves providing many doorways into the left everybody comes uh to their platform or their show or whatever they do from a different direction, with a little different emphasis, with a different personality, and you know, you know, let all those flowers bloom. Let let everybody on the left have those flowers are going to bloom regardless, as you know. Um, but you know, let it happen because somebody might listen to me and not really connect for whatever cultural background, personal reasons. And I don't really connect with with him, but I do connect with this this content creator. So I'll go in this way or whatever it may be. So casting that wide net and providing many doorways is is important. Um, I would love to actually see the emergence of a real principled communist party in the in the United States precisely because we could marry a lot of these disparate um, educational platforms and stuff up to that broader party um, and and that would be that would be interesting and I think worthwhile and then would 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 push in the direction of actually putting these ideas into action right we need that that party apparatus to be able to pursue our politics and going on the offensive instead of constantly playing defense or merely talking to one another. Um, so that would be a nice development to see. Um, but yeah, so those are just some of my thoughts, but I'm also genuinely interested in, in some of your thoughts as well, all of you. Well, I think the, the debate point really resonates with all of us. Uh, we <laughs> won't get into it too much. Um, don't want to get clipped or anything. But um, <laughs> but yes, I definitely definitely agree with you there. People do tend to come with their own, with their boxing gloves on, and they've got their guy in their corner, and the other guy's in the other corner. And it's just, it's not productive. And it's, it, it 
those people will tend to just talk themselves into a corner. Like they're trying to convince themselves of something in order to get, you know, a spicy enough take to post on Twitter, <laughs> yeah. um, which I think is incredibly counterproductive. If you're not walking away with literature at the end of the of a discussion with somebody else, then most of the time it probably wasn't a productive discussion. <laughs> and especially one where you're just trying to convince each other of, of comp- not even opposing viewpoints, but just where your point is not, oh, is what I believe truly correct, but instead, oh, I want to prove you wrong instead. Yeah, exactly. Of course, this isn't valid for you know 100% of the time, but if there is a respectful conversation that takes place, like you said, the, the format you had between anarchists and a Marxist, uh, that Marxist being yourself, of course, that's productive and something can emerge out of that. But at the end of the day, uh, y- you need to have a cons- constructive conversation built on mutual respect and a, a slight non-combativeness. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a time and place for everything. Right. I don't want to say that the debates are a hundred useless a hundred percent of the time. True. But ninety nine percent of the time they pretty much are. <laughs> a simple example is, if you want to even think about the entire um, history of the of the uh, Bolshevik Party is filled with instances of what we would I guess consider to be uh, very uh, vitriolic. Is that the term in English? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, debating between two different sides or two particular individuals. By the end of the day, some great theory came out of that. But at, at what, what's important about uh, this point is the people who were doing the discussion were highly educated in the matter that they were speaking of. They had personal experience of it. They've done the research, right? Mm-hmm. Lenin wrote an 800-page book about the development of capitalism in Russia. He knew what he was talking about <laughs> <Yeah>. when he <laughs> was, you know, like, th- that's what I mean. Not like skimming a fucking Wikipedia article. Uh, but anyway, sorry. <laughs> Go on. Absolutely. Exactly, but they were they were bouncing they were bouncing concepts and ideas off of each other in order to find a greater truth, a more material, true analysis uh, of the world. But what you have, especially connected to the so-called funnel that we're talking about, is uh, be it individuals or groups which understand that at one moment people are going to go further down, or one should say higher up through the funnel after they're done with their specific type of uh, be it content, be it rhetoric, etc., etc. And what does that mean? That means, come on kids, yes, less money for them, less Mm -hmm. attention, less eyeballs, and so on. So why allow these people to move further down the pipeline? Well, you would, and you would care about that a lot more than lining your own pockets if you were actually doing this for the movement and not for yourself. But when your personal greed takes uh, precedence over uh, your participation in the world we're trying to create, that's when you know you put a you cut off the pipeline and you start building a wall uh, that's as thick as you can and sometimes you actually even create a separate pipeline to take people in constant circles like one of those old Nokia snake eating its own ass <laughs> type of games uh, and, and, and it's just self-serving at the end of the day and honestly I always asked myself is if it's self-serving by instinct because, you know, they see the line go up and uh, they're like, okay, I'll, I'll keep doing what I'm doing right now because, uh, you know, it's helping bring more people to the community and because, you know, I'm lining my own pockets. Or is it, uh, or is it genuinely intentional and do they at one point uh, stop feeling like they're a part of the class movement they were part of before and turn it just into uh, another grind the way you know 99% of all of us are trying to trying to go through in order to survive uh 
that that question only they can answer, I think. But uh, uh, time will show at the end of the day where, where their true intentions, you know, lie, be it with themselves or the movement. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's plenty of both of those versions actually out there, you know, people that sort of fall into it and people that very cynically pursue that. And, and that that's the ego driven stuff I'm talking about. And that's really the careerism. Um, that that you have to watch out for, especially when you're on the left, you have a platform and you start getting some recognition is like, okay, now you're locked in materially to this thing. So do you want to, you know, build a career out of this? At that point, you're going to have to maybe leave some of the more radical stuff aside or or do something simply because it generates clicks and not because it's actually substantive. Um, And then once you start playing into that whole calculus, then you're just off into opportunist land. Um, And I think it's also important about a, a political party that can, you know, like to operate as a media uh, platform in connection with the political party, there's that there's it's not just an individual and their careerist or egoic ambitions, but it's actually I'm literally tethered to this political formation and I can, in some sense, um, be disciplined by it um, in, in, in the sense that I can't just free float off into my opportunism and my careerism. Um, but I actually am am, in in service of a larger political project and tied to other institutions. And uh, I would would like to see the emergence of something like that as well. That will be able to hold you accountable a lot more than just, you know, the random uh, cloud of the Internet does today. Yes, apologies, Jake. No, you're good. Now, we like to try to end on a positive note. So, Brett, what is one thing that you're hopeful about? I mean, obviously, we don't want to be naive about the challenges we face but what is something you see going well in the coming months or years or decades? Yeah, well, I have to definitely do more than one and because I think it is important to provide hope because I think being a Marxist, a communist on the left, um, just being a human being that actually feels feelings, um, you can be very, it can be very <laughs> pessimistic. It can be very dark. We live in dark, uncertain times and hyper, being hyper aware of all the ways in which things are terrible um, can be deteriorating to somebody's mental health to say nothing of their ability to stay engaged with this political project. And you see a lot of people get hopeless and just clock out. They basically, they recoil into their personal life um, and they turn away from politics because it's so frustrating. It's so shitty. And if, if all the Marxists are doing is just pointing out how shitty everything is, it can obviously deactivate people. So we have to have this revolutionary hope. We have to, you know, sometimes lead with it. Uh, You know, things aren't, all terrible. We do still have agency. We can make a change. And I think change is coming. It is coming, right? And uh, what, what that change looks like, nobody knows. But things are in a insane moment of radical transition. And we do not know what's coming next, but we know that for sure the old world, as Gramsci once said, is dying. Mm. And the new world is certainly trying to be born. And now is certainly the time of monsters. Like, I love that fucking quote, mm-hmm. and it hits so fucking hard in 2022, um, you know, just as hard as I assume as it did in his time. Are you perhaps insinuating that matter is in motion? I think so. <laughs> I, I, would, I would say that. <laughs> but yeah, so, so, so that process is a historical process, and it is happening. Um, and and so, so one of the things that gives me hope is, is, is that um, change is inevitable, right? Uh, everything changes. Nothing is, is stagnant. And the dialectical fact that every advance that the forces of reaction and empire and, and capitalist rapaciousness make creates instantaneously the resistance to it. Uh, every time, like right now in the U.S., 
you could use a million examples, but the Supreme Court is very likely going to t- overturn Roe v. Wade. Mm. Um, it's, it's, it's seeming very likely sometime uh, this summer it's, it's going to come on the docket, and it will very likely, mm. I mean, a lot Please of people... explain think what that, that is for the uh, non-American audience. Yeah, Roe v. Wade is the constitutional right uh, for a, a woman to have access to abortions. Um, okay, and perfect. so, thank you. Yeah, that's going to be overturned, meaning that women will no longer in the United States have a constitutional right to basically bodily autonomy, right? So then the, the right's going to think that they won, and they spent decades trying to to get juice this bench of of judges coming from the right and these think tanks and getting a, a, a big majority on the Supreme Court, which Trump absolutely allowed them to do, and then they're going to do this thing, and what is it going to do? It is going to create the backlash to it immediately. Um, and, and we saw that with with everything that the right tries to do. So, as things get worse, as all the the worst fucking people continue to ravage and devour the planet and society, it is creating already, and will continue to create the resistance to it. Our job, hopefully, is to help broaden that resistance, and to make it more principled, and to um, get it out into the real world, and to actually have an organized force that we can we can do political struggle through. Um, and I, and I, I'm hopeful that that will emerge. Uh, another thing is is the youth. You know, it's sort of a cliche. Oh, the youth will save us. No, I don't think that. There's just as many 15-year-old fascists as there are mm-hmm. 55-year-old fascists. Yeah. Um, a, a, a rabid empire based in genocide and white supremacy is not going to go kindly into that good night and is not going to be undermined simply by demographic shifts. Um, but young people, specifically around the climate issue, know goddamn well that their future is on the line. If you're a 70-year-old boomer, you know, and you're in the Senate and you have a million, millions of dollars in your bank account, what the fuck do you care about the future, really? And you're already probably a sociopath because you're in Congress, so you don't even necessarily care about your kids, let alone other kids and their futures, or you convince yourself it's not even happening or whatever. But young people cannot do that. They're emerging into a decaying world. And um, I think that is going to be one of the epicenters of of change and, and forcing institutions to respond to this global crisis um, as as time goes on. Um, and so I'm, I'm hopeful in, in those ways. It's not going to be easy. What's coming in the next years and decades is going to be tragic and brutal. And, and lots of innocent people are going to be fucking hurt. And the climate is going to ravage entire countries. And it's going to put insane pressure on the contradictions inside every single society. So I don't want to paint a, a Pollyannish view of what's coming, but there is reason to hope. Uh, the, 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 the movement for humanity, for liberation, for justice, for truth is going to be present. And I think we can take, we can take some, uh, some refuge in, in that fact. And then I would also just stress as a last thing, a thing I do on Rev Left a lot is this idea that outward transformation has to come with some degree of, of inner transformation. And that doesn't mean that you should recoil from political struggle and focus on, you know, spiritual engagement or, or whatever. But I do think it means that as communists, at least for me, I not only have a responsibility of tra- transforming the outward world, but I feel like I have a responsibility to transform my inner world in the sense that I am less and less dominated by my ego. I'm less and less pulled around by greed. I'm less and less, um, you know, machismo in my reaction to things. I'm less and less reactionary to things in general. Um, but, you know, th- this parallel process of, of almost like a new consciousness emerging, a more 
dialectical, more internationalist, more ecologically minded, civilizational, collective way of, of relating to the natural world, to ourselves and to one another, in parallel to th this outward change that is already happening and will continue to happen. Um, and, and so I really do think like humanity is at a crossroads. Like, do we evolve in the sense of do we like culturally move up this next level and leave these old institutions and structures and way of doing things behind? Or do we, in so many words, perish, right? Fall into barbarism, fall into the dystopia that very well could be tossed at our feet if we fail. Um, I think that is a, that's, that's a, that's a huge question. And those things and more, uh, they, they give me some hope. Although, uh, again, like Gramsci said, you know, pessimist of the pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will, no mm. matter how dark things get, it's not over till it's over. Uh, and we all have an obligation to humanity to, to fight in this fight. That's a beautiful perspective. And I think that's, that's really the best way to look at it. It's not to be naive going forward, but to re-up your dedication to the cause, to really hunker down and, and recognize that we're in for a long, difficult fight. And we, it is our responsibility to keep these ideals strong and to keep moving forward and to fight for a world that really works for everybody. Where we've broken free of the, these shackles that we've <laughs> suffered for so long and come out the other side stronger. So I think that's, that's a great perspective mm. you've got there. All right. Well, I think that about does it for today. Brett, thank you so much for coming on the show. Tell our listeners where they can find you and your work online. Yeah, first off, thank you all three of you so much for having me on. Truly, genuinely honored to be able to be, I think, the first guest on this, on this uh, yep, podcast, Yeah, very right? first guest. Yes. So thank you so much. It's, 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 a, it's an honor, absolutely. Um, and if you're interested— We're honored to have you, man. <laughs> yeah, very well, first uh, deprogram challenge coin. <laughs> hell yeah, it's all love. <laughs> um, but if you want to find me and what I do, anybody can just go to revolutionaryleftradio.com. You see all three of our shows, our Patreon, our social media— and we even hooked up with a, a little co-op called Goods for the People to make some merch. So if you're interested in that, definitely check it out. Unique design. I'm really proud of it. Uh, so, yeah, that's where you can find me, and that's how you can support us. Fantastic. Well, thank you again. You guys, make sure to go and check out RevLeft. Check out all the links uh, that Brett's just mentioned. Uh, this has been The D Program. I'm JT. I'm Akeem. And I'm Yugopnik. And I'm Brett. And we'll see you next time.